and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. By the time this episode reaches you, Charles III will be crowned King of England. It's a once-in-a-lifetime event for some people, though excitement has not been unbridled. Two-thirds of us don't care very much, or not at all, about the coronation, according to YouGov. In other words, Charles III has a mountain to climb if he wants to turn around the monarchy's reputation. And given he's 74, he probably doesn't have a lot of time or energy to do that. What's his plan, and how has he fared so far? Joining me is Stephen Bates, The Guardian's former royal correspondent and the author of Royalty Inc. Welcome back to The Bunker, Stephen. Hi, Roz. Nice to speak to you again. Yeah, you last spoke to us just after the Queen's death in September. And the palace, I imagine, will have been quite relieved at the way the British public responded to that. There was the very long queue to see her coffin and a ceremony at which the bad vibes between William and Harry were, let's say, muted. But since then, we've had the Netflix series and that explosive book, The Spare, that Harry wrote. How is Charles handling this rift with his youngest son? Well, I think with restraint of the sort that you would expect a parent in similar circumstances to adopt, really. Um, He's not getting down into the weeds of the controversy. And he's uh, doing the traditional royal thing also of never apologise, never admit, and never deny. So I think this is probably the best he could hope for. Of course, we've just had recently Prince Harry's accusation that uh, there was a secret payoff from Rupert Murdoch's News International Corporation to his big brother, Prince William. Whether that will force the royals out, uh, I rather doubt. How about William himself? Because he must know that he'll probably be king within a couple of decades. Is he moving smoothly into that role? I think so, yes. He's obviously a serious man and he is happily married, not something that always applies to heirs and spares of the royal family. And he's taking his duties seriously. And I think that's the most that the British public will be asking of him at this stage. Yes, he seems to have been investing a lot of time and energy in his Earthshot project to award a prize to innovative green projects. Catherine, meanwhile, his wife, has been the darling of the royal press since Meghan quit the stage. What kind of a Princess of Wales does Catherine want to be? Well, I think she fits the uh, model of ideal wife, mother. She's certainly um, provided the royal family with more heirs for the eventual succession. And she seems to enjoy more than tolerate royal excursions, visits, public appearances, that sort of thing, while being discreet and uh, smiling rather well, which is, again, you know, what the current wife of the future sovereign is required to do. And I think she does it very well. So Charles can relax a bit when it comes to his son and his daughter-in-law. But there is the other big problem, Andrew and his disgrace. What's been Charles's approach to that since he took over? Well, it's been very much hands-off. He's uh, really cut Andrew out of public appearances. I think he's cut back on his budget and he's kept him on a fairly tight but uh, not public reign. And I think that's probably a pretty effective way of keeping the very black sheep of the family under wraps. But there's no question of throwing him out of the royal family, excommunicating him, I suppose you could say, altogether. 
No, I don't think you can do that. He is the second son, and everyone knows who he is and what he's been up to. And if they didn't know before, they've always got the infamous Newsnight interview to show them. So it's a question for the royals of what do you do with him? And what you do with him is not give him any leeway or excuse to return to public life. There was talk of a slimmed down, cheaper monarchy under Charles, but I haven't seen a lot of evidence of that yet. Have I missed it or has it not got underway? Well, it's sort of got underway. I mean, it's a process which started with the Queen, although, again, you might not have noticed too much. The balcony scene at Buckingham Palace is going to be restricted to working members of the royal family. And the number of working members of the royal family is, in any event, uh, rather slimmed down these days. We've mentioned Andrew. Harry's gone off to California with uh, Meghan. And some of the other more minor princes, dukes and duchesses who have been helping out with public events over many decades now are all getting pretty old and frail. So they're not really going to be bouncing about too much. So really, the burden is going to be shared with Princess Anne, Prince Edward and Sophie Wessex, his wife, and the Waleses, William and Catherine. So it's a pretty limited team, and they're the ones who are going to be getting public funding for their royal duties. I think there is now going to be a bit of a hiatus until the next generation of royal offspring are of an age to be out of education and able to uh, help the royals out with opening things and attending events. Which presumably is about, what, 10, 10 years off when they start to do that? I guess, yes. Probably a bit longer, actually, if they go off to university. Prince George is now sort of eight or nine. So, yeah, we're talking 12, 14 years, I suppose. And then the royal soap opera cranks up for a new generation. It's uh, it's like the archers, you know, as old characters die out, uh, new ones come in. You uh, lose Walter Gabriel and you get Jazza instead. <laughs> Charles owns a hell of a lot of property. Is he hanging on to all that? And The Guardian has been making a lot of fuss about this over the past couple of weeks and enumerating his properties and uh, his jewels and all this kind of thing. Has he only plans to divest himself of some of his houses, for example? I rather doubt it, to be honest. It's always quite difficult, and I think my old paper doesn't always take full account of this, to know what is private property and what is uh, state property. Charles has Highgrove in Gloucestershire, that's his private house. Balmoral up in Scotland is privately owned by the royals, as is Sandringham in Norfolk. But Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle and Holyrood House in Edinburgh are all really official residences of the sovereign. So they're not going to be able to sell those off at any time. And again, the same goes for not just property, but also possessions. Charles can't sell off the royal crown jewels, for instance, or he won't be able to sell off the Vermeers and the Rembrandts in the royal collection, or possibly even George V's stamp collection, which is a pretty valuable product. There are things he could sell off and things that he won't be able to touch. Again, dividing up 
what is state-owned and what is privately owned is more complex than sometimes is allowed. Are we moving any closer at all to a kind of Danish or Swedish-style monarchy? Because, you know, obviously Harry and Meghan have departed, so there are a few people doing the openings and all the routine work. But, I mean, do you see a further cull, if you like, of the active royal family members until it becomes a very close-knit circle of a few people rather than the extended family that we still see now? I guess so. I think a lot of people would quite welcome that. But despite the waning popularity that opinion polls seem to suggest, I think people are used to a traditional British monarchy, which has a very long pedigree and history behind it. And uh, they like to see what one Victorian politician described as the gilding for their money. That's the public's money, of course. I think that the Scandinavian monarchies set a rather good example, and I don't see any reason why more peripheral members of the royal family shouldn't be earning their own living and doing so in a semi-private way. So long as they're not doing that at the expense of what they're paid for, their public duties, uh, I would think that's quite a good thing. It has to be said that the British monarchy is much longer established and has a different place in the constitution, really, than, for instance, the Scandinavian monarchies do. And that's one reason why perhaps they're slower to adapt than some of the other monarchies. We've seen with the whole spare saga, and of course we saw with Princess Diana before and at the time of her death, that it is an insane level of public scrutiny. And Harry and Meghan have clearly decided that they don't want, or rather they don't want that kind of public scrutiny. They don't want to be part of the monarchy anymore. And I do wonder how sustainable it is. I mean, as we've discussed, Catherine seems remarkably able to adapt herself to the demands of the royal family. But how many people are going to be able to want to do this, especially those who have been born into it? and didn't, as she did, make the choice to enter this frankly dysfunctional family and to make all the sacrifices that you have to do in order to just survive. Well, yeah, it comes with the territory, doesn't it? Prince Harry seems to be quite happy to receive public funding, but doesn't want to be in the public eye. And it's very difficult. I think the one thing that kills off the institution is the loss of a sense of public spirit and duty, especially duty. You can get away with an awful lot if you're conscientious and reliable, you turn up on time, you don't make a fuss, and you smile nicely for the cameras. I mean, that's the way of all celebrity in many ways, but the monarchy has the additional need to show a sense of public responsibility and, as I say, public duty. If you can adapt to that, your publicity is likely to be largely benign. Catherine and William have discovered that. They're not terribly exciting as far as the media is concerned. But actually, monarchy is not something you want to get too excited about. And so far, they're fulfilling that role fairly successfully. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise... Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a 
an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of duty and responsibility, Camilla's acceptance by the British public must have come as a relief to she and Charles. What position is she carving out for herself? Yes, well, she's been about, hanging about for a very, very long time, of course. And there was a very slow public gavotte in the wake of the 1990s and especially Diana's death to introduce her publicly to the British public and to do so in a fairly low-key and slow way so that uh, her presence, uh, which Charles has always said was non-negotiable, should not uh, frighten the horses too much. She knows all about keeping horses calm, of course, from a long personal experience. I think she's she does rather well. She uh, doesn't cause scenes. She appears sunny and friendly and able to talk to people on a very straightforward level, perhaps dating back from the decades when she was doing the family shopping at Asda and Waitrose. So she has a sense, I think, that she knows what being an ordinary member of the public is like. And she hasn't lost that down-to-earthness. Charles, unfortunately, has never had it. So um, I think she's a useful and cheerful corrective to that. Yes, he went to Germany recently. He was also hoping to go to France, but because of the big demonstrations, protests, he couldn't go. How did the Germany visit go? I think it went very well. He was very well received, uh, big crowds and very jolly. It is always slightly difficult going to European countries because you don't know quite what the sort of currents of public opinion will do, how they play in with whatever's going on in politics in the country you're visiting. But no, I think they were pleased to see him and the crowds were good. He didn't mess up and they got away with it. Does he actually enjoy these kinds of occasions? I think he enjoys some bits of them. He's been doing it now for so long that it comes as second nature to him. I don't think he likes the media scrutiny any more than uh, his younger son does, probably his older son either. But he's at least learnt largely to disguise and cover it over. There was a lot of talk about him wanting to indulge his interest in green issues when he became king, but has he actually been able to do that? Well, he did go to a green uh, farm, I think it was, while he was in Germany. And yes, uh, royal correspondents always complain, oh, not another rainforest, not another green plantation. Oh, God, this is so boring. But he still does it, and he takes no notice of that sort of thing. Uh, It's very bad for copy for royal correspondents because it's all been said before, and it doesn't actually change the story all that much. Um, But it is a sign of his commitment, and it's a very long-standing commitment now, of course. And he's, of course, also committed in his job to being head of the Church of England, but he has suggested in the past that he would want to be defender, I think, of all faiths. Have we seen that a bit in the coronation plans? Yes, I think there there is going to be a change there. Uh, It's certainly not going to be the sort of very high Church of England Anglican service that it was for his mother and indeed going back through history. 
Uh, there is going to be the participation of uh, representatives of other faiths. That's clear. But he is still the defender of the faith, uh, the Anglican faith, the Church of England, and that won't change. He's not, I think, probably as devout as his mother was because he comes from a somewhat different generation. But I'm sure uh, as the best trained Prince of Wales for generations, he recognises that it's an important strand in the authority of the monarchy. So is it fair to say that despite suggestions before he became king that he might not be able to keep his political views under wraps, as he of course needs to do in his position, that he basically has? Yes, I think he has. Um, I think we know much more about his interests than we ever knew about his mother's. But by and large, those are not politically sensitive issues. The green issue is obviously potentially uh, partisan, but he's kept it at a pretty general level. And he knows pretty well that meddling in politics is not something that the modern monarchy is able to do hasn't really meddled in politics since the early years of Queen Victoria's reign, which are now nearly 200 years away. Um, So it looks as if they've learned a pretty strong lesson there. Finally, Steve, is he managing to control that infamous quick temper, the one we saw on display after his mother's death when he got very annoyed by a pen? Yes, well, I dare say that occasion might arise again unless they've equipped him with a supply of leak-proof biros. I I doubt very much whether he would use a biro, incidentally. He's more a fountain pen man. Uh, There may be outbursts of uh, frustration, but by and large, he seems to be keeping a lid on it. Well, there you go. The king who will not use a biro. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ross. It's been lovely to speak to you again. We rarely talk about the monarchy on the bunker, so you can be sure the next episode will be back discussing the really serious stuff. But if you enjoyed this brief foray into kingly affairs, then search Patreon Bunker Podcast to support us. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Bunker was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producer was Kasia Tomaszewicz, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>